Hello, beautifuls. Welcome to another episode of Her Sexual Space, a podcast where we create a sex-positive space to engage in empowering discussions for building relational and sexual awareness. Today's guest is Marsha Stabinski. Marsha is a first-generation American and native to Washington, D.C. area. She's currently a program director of behavioral sciences for a community organization, that supports adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities in day programs and supported living. Marsha earned her Master of Science in Special Education with a concentration in severe to profound disabilities and a post-master certificate in applied behavior analysis from John Hopkins University. She brings over 12 years of rich experience working with individuals with disabilities and their families in a range of settings, including clinical, educational, and vocational. She has experience with program development, management, and innovation, coaching, training, and facilitation, including international speaking engagements. Marsha is currently completing supervision toward her sexuality educator certification of the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, ASECT. When she's not working or talking about sex, Masha enjoys going on travel adventures, once upon a time, right? Uh, food adventures and uh, making stained glass windows and spending time with her wonderful husband and kitties. Welcome to the podcast, Masha. Thank you so much for having me, Janice. It is a pleasure. Uh, I am just so excited to have you. I believe this is a conversation that is not happening a lot. And um, to have someone who specializes in this area is huge. And I'm so glad you responded that day when I posted in the Sexual Health Alliance group. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, no, I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, I was just posting about, you know, just trying to connect with persons who were in different niches. And um, I was just blown away when you responded. I was like, wow, someone is doing that work. Yes. Well, and, you know, I have to give credit to the people who came before me doing this work. Because um, mm -hmm. there was certainly a, a line of people who blazed a trail uh, so that people like me could kind of come in and start continuing this work. Um, but yeah, I mean... You know, I definitely, when I tell people that I teach sex ed to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, um, I would say more often than not, people are surprised, maybe a little uncomfortable when I tell them that. I'm not even um, surprised by that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so for me, you know, it, coming from the, my, my entire background, all my experience training, I've worked in the special ed fields. Um, my entire life, pretty much. Um, I haven't really done anything else. And so for me, it kind of, once I discovered that sex ed needs to be happening, should be happening, is happening, not necessarily the best way in schools. Um, it was kind of a, it was a reality check of like, duh, of course, of course, these, this population, of course, these students need this information. Um, but I think it's, it's not necessarily obvious to everyone and certainly people that don't work in special education or maybe don't interact with people with disabilities and, mm -hmm. and not just specifically intellectual and developmental disabilities, but, you know, people with physical impairments yeah. are also sexual, right? Um, yeah. So I think sometimes we just kind of, we forget that all people are sexual people, regardless of your ability, regardless of your ethnicity, race, culture. Um, we are sexual beings. Yeah. Thank you so much. So before we go any deeper, because there is so much there, <laughs> um, just share with us, how do you identify yourself um, in the world? And if you can just tell us a little bit about your, a little bit more about your story. I know you just started going into it, but if you can tell us a little bit about you. Yeah. Um, so yes, I'm Marsha. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. About me, I live in Washington, D.C. And you kind of already mentioned that I'm a first generation American. And that's definitely an identity that I hold very close to my heart, that I am a Russian Jewish woman. Um, Holocaust Remembrance Day was just this past week. Yes. So I definitely think of my grandparents every year and their survival so that I can be here living this life, doing this work. So yeah, I've been working with individuals with disabilities for over 12 years, as you'd mentioned. Um, 
I found myself in this work um, when I was still a special ed teacher. And I previously was teaching very young children, kindergarten to third grade. And then I moved to a new school and I was teaching 18 to 22 year olds, which was like a, a new world for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and stuff. that was, yeah. And that was, I, like I said, you know, I kind of, that was the, the moment where I realized like, oh, wow. Yeah, no, these students need sex ed too. Because um, you don't really think of young children needing that information. Although now yeah. my perspective on that has changed as well. You know, my, mm-hmm. my, I've had a lot of cognitive shifts um, over the years since my early mm-hmm. days of teaching. But when I was teaching this classroom of 18 to 22-year-olds, I was at the time working in a special ed-only school. So a lot of the students were pretty impacted by their disabilities. And when the assistant principal emailed the teachers saying, we're going to be starting family life, here are some permission slips to send them home, I was very excited Um, I was always really interested in sexual health and sexual education. And I remember thinking back to my own experiences in sex ed in school, it left a lot to be desired. Um, so I couldn't wait to see what this was going to look like for my classroom. And I was pretty disappointed when a social worker came two times to my class. Um, I was expecting, you know, every day kind of instruction and activities, but there was only two activities and they were not age appropriate for my classroom of 18 to 22 year olds, nor were they, nor were the activities very relevant to those individuals' needs and their development. Yeah. So it was a like it was a reality check. You know, I realized if this is a special ed only school and this is what's being offered, what's happening in general ed settings or other settings, right? Non non school right. settings, um, mm-hmm. and that I would say for me is where my my interest, maybe obsession um, with this topic for this population started. Yeah, that is so beautiful. And, you know, you talk about that cognitive shift and I'm like, wow, you know, sometimes we don't think about what actually happens in that moment, right? You notice like, wow, there's a lack. There is a lack of this. And then I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to do something about it. So I commend you for noticing it and doing something about it. It's one thing to just be like, oh, well, I guess that's how it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and move on. But just the, the steps you've taken to really shape yourself to be able to do this on a larger scale, um, I think that's impressive. In fact, oh, thank that you. is impressive, right? That is Thank that you. Is, that is really good. Um, and I wonder for you, who was instrumental Um just as, because I know sometimes we have those ideas, right? Um, you know, what if I did this or whatever? Um, but who was instrumental in just guiding you and, and, and maybe encouraging you as you went along that path? I'm going to try to not make this sound like a like an Oscars thank you speech. Um, <laughs> but I have to start. I do have to start first and foremost with my parents and my brother. Because um, while they didn't necessarily direct me to this field or to this work, they were... They've been instrumental in their in that their support for me and my work is never ending. And they have truly stood by me in all of my career decisions. And on the flip side, have been very honest when they felt like perhaps I needed to think through some decisions more. But either way, they truly have my best interests and heart. And it's good to have them in my corner. Yeah. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a woman named Dr. Thomas. She was the professor of the human sexuality class I took in college. And it was the first time I ever took a class on something like human sexuality. And I was always in class. It's just transforming. It is. And, you know, I when I went into that class, I was super excited about it because I was like, I'm interested in sex. But I kind of just chalked it up to like, I'm horny. (laughs) That's why I like sex. And it was this class and talking to her because I had a lot of conversations with her outside of class where she shared just about her life and her experiences and you know her travels and adventures and it was that class that made me realize that I can actually be interested and passionate about this topic not just because I I like sex Um, there's actually a whole world here that I'm drawn to and that I'm interested in and and that it's extremely practical um, because sexual development and sexual health is part of everyone's life. So I really have to give her credit for kind of inspiring me, inspiring me to see that, you know, this can be a field that I pursue. Um, In terms of the sexuality and disability space, um, I have a few heroes that have really helped, helped guide me. Um, Dave Hingsberger, 
Peter Gerhardt and Catherine McLaughlin are three people that have been working in the field of disability and sexuality for a long time. Um, people that I certainly admire. I've worked, I've had the opportunity to go to a three-day workshop um, facilitated by Catherine McLaughlin and that was incredibly inspiring and she's so knowledgeable and so warm and um, yeah, so I, they definitely are people. And, and when I first kind of started getting interested in this field and this work and trying to figure out how I can teach this information to young people with disabilities, they were some of the first three people who I found on the internet um, whose resources were available to me. So um, they were definitely instrumental in kind of helping move me forward. And then I have two people left that I need to, that were have been instrumental. And uh, fourth is my husband. Um, he has been my greatest cheerleader and has been so supportive of me pursuing this passion when I decided that I want to get my ASEC certification. You know, it was go for it, whatever you need to do, do it. Um, he even, there was a, a couples SAR that I went to with him. Um, so was he that is the one really, in February? Yes, yes, the one in February. <laughs> um, yeah, we did, we did that together and that was mm-hmm. really awesome. And I was blown away by... Um, how open to everything and unbothered by everything he was. He was um, nice. Yeah, it was it was awesome. It was very cool. So, and it's cool that we were able to do that together and experience mm-hmm. to get that together. So, without his support, I would not. Yeah, it means everything to me. And then the last person, but certainly not least, is a woman named Yetta Myrick. Um, she's first a friend of mine, but she's also a colleague, and she is a mother of a young teenage man with autism. She is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit, DC Autism Parents, um, and she has been one of my strongest supporters in the community. Um, and so I really, she, especially over these last couple of years, um, has been, her support has been so invaluable to me. That's amazing. That's a lot of support there. I know. I try I to think not everyone it- should have that. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I'm very, I'm very lucky that I have uh, a really wonderful support network of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so amazing. Yeah. So, you know, you've shared a little bit, but, um, you know, I I, I wonder if there's anything else you wanted to add to just the path to where you are right now. Because I know recently you had a work, uh, a career shift or uh, a job shift, if you want to just share what you transitioned from and what you're doing now. Sure. So, so right now I am uh, director of behavioral services, uh, program director of behavioral services for an organization that supports adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities in supported living homes, intermediate care facilities, um, and some day programs. So I oversee um, like 12 or 13 homes. Um, and we have behavior specialists that work in those homes. And so I kind of support the behavior needs of those individuals in the homes. Um, obviously sexual health needs come up daily when you're working Mm. with adults. So it's very much part of our job, um, helping to educate and inform staff, uh, that, you know, it's okay if this adult wants to, engage in solo sex they are allowed to do that that's their right you know it's Mm -hmm. not shameful we don't have to get worried about it so there's a lot of those conversations and more that go on um Mm -hmm. a lot of education um a lot of working with the young people to help um, educate them on kind of what their needs are and helping them um develop the skill the skills so they can um, be sexually healthy and make informed decisions so it's been really great getting to to do that work and a lot of the um, BCBAs that I oversee are very eager they they were very excited when I came on board and I had shared that I'm actually really interested in sexual health and sexuality for this population um, so they were very excited because it's not typically a person you yes. um, meet everyone every um, very often. So yeah. um, they've been very eager for resources and information. So that's been fun. Um, prior, As they should, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, prior to this organization, I was working at a pediatric hospital in DC, where I uh, helped open an ABA clinic for individuals ten to twenty one, um, and we had kind of individual therapy services, but then we also offered. Um, we had an after-school program for teens with autism, and it was a social skills program, but also we focused a lot on developing some life skills and some job skills. So we had um, a cookie business that we started, and um, these group of teens every month were responsible for working together to pick a recipe, um, which if you've worked with 
teens with autism working together collaboratively um, is not always easy. I mean, look, let's yeah, be real. Yeah. Just typical adults in work settings don't always have the easiest time working together. <laughs> right. um, and then if you add autism on top of it, it can be a little bit trickier. Yeah. Um, so they had to work together to pick a recipe. They would um, do inventory of all of our ingredients to develop grocery lists and go to the grocery store and do all the grocery shopping. They would develop flyers for the bake sale and pass them out to the hospital staff. Um, they would actually bake the cookies by themselves. And, and it got to the point where they truly were doing all of these steps on their own. Um, myself and the other staff were kind of just there watching and answering questions and helping if needed. Mm -hmm. um, and then they would actually man take control of the bake sale, sell the cookies and do all the money management um, afterwards. So it was a really cool, it was a really cool group. And we obviously embedded a lot of social skills practice and social skills work. Um, and they kind of had real life opportunities to practice these skills, not just sitting at a table, um, yeah. talking to each other and talking to us. And while I was at that job, that's when I really started building out my sexuality education workshops for the community. Um, I was very fortunate that the leadership of that hospital was very open and excited to offer that. It wasn't necessarily part of their services specifically, but just have it as something that's being offered from the hospital. So that was really when I kind of put a lot of energy into developing these workshop series and marketing them and, and getting interest from the community. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I saw you just had one. Well, you had a few last month, right? Oh, yeah. I had three last month. Yeah. Um, I had three so. last month and then I had two this month. Mm -hmm. And they're all virtual? Yes. Right now they're all virtual. They were in person. Um, they used to be in person for like two and a half hours. Um, they were really great. They were really interactive. Um, and so I had workshops for parents and caregivers. I had workshops for professionals. Um, the goal was over time. You know, I started with the parent workshops um, with the hopes that I could get enough parent interest to actually form a cohort of young people with you know self-advocates young people with disabilities to actually provide some sex education to them as well yeah, um because you know that. truly yeah so smart you know, <laughs> i know I your strategy it, thanks but it was it was hard you know i i yeah. had out of the gosh over a year we were i was doing the in-person workshops for a year and a half um and i had two parents who were very committed to having their child come um, unfortunately those two individuals had very different learning profiles. So kind of having them together wouldn't have necessarily worked, but I had a lot of parents who said, yes, this is great. And I'm interested, but not yet, not now. Um, so I never got, I was never able to get that going. I do have, I am going to be doing, um, a 16 week sex ed course for self advocates, but that's going to be virtual. So obviously since COVID we've had to pivot and do things virtually, um, but that's why I'm I'm super grateful for my friend Yetta um, because she wanted to make you know sex ed workshops part kind of a cornerstone of her of her nonprofit and what the, her nonprofit offers to the community. So when talking when talking with her about you know making some shifts to doing virtual workshops, she was like, "I let's do this together." So it's it's been a it's been good and it hasn't been too easy. I mean, too hard moving the workshops to a virtual setting. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I think a lot of people like that. And that's definitely something I can see just you continuing over the years and maybe doing on an international level. I don't know if you've oh, I mean, done any of that. Yeah. Would be, that would be, I mean, I, yeah, I, I've, um, you know, I've been very fortunate that I worked with a rush. I've connected with a Russian foundation, the Naked Heart Foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the, one of the main things they do in Russia is developing services and programs for children with special needs there. Um, but I've got, I've had the opportunity to go to Russia three times to deliver workshops and seminars on this topic there. And, um, that has really, I mean, if I could wave a magic wand around, that would be what I do full time. Mm -hmm. Go around everywhere and talk to people about sex ed and why it's so great. And that, that is possible. So I'm guessing, you know, with yeah. time, that's something yeah. you can yeah. So Hopefully. any roadblocks? Any roadblocks um, you've encountered? Just um, you know, I'm really, places. I'm really lucky that I haven't had anything too major. To be honest, I've so I've been really fortunate in that respect, and I've found a community that sees the value in my work, and I've been really supported in pursuing that. So no, 
luckily, no, no roadblocks. Nice, nice. So let's get into the <laughs> into the meat, right? The meat mm-hmm. and potatoes of of the podcast. So, how do you define developmental disabilities? So, for our audience, um, those who are close to that population, um, and those who I guess those who aren't close to that population or, you know, because there are some of us that are really just blind to the needs of these specific populations. So for those people, how would you define developmental disabilities? I guess intellectual and developmental. Yeah, I've been I've been throwing both of those around. So, yeah. yes, that's a great question. I will define both since they're similar but different. So developmental disabilities essentially encompasses a broad range of conditions Um, resulting from cognitive or physical impairments. Typically, developmental disabilities are identified before the age of 22, and they usually last throughout a person's lifetime. Um, When we talk about developmental disabilities, we're usually referring to intellectual disabilities, cerebral palsy, autism, Down syndrome, hearing loss, vision impairment, um, language delays, learning disorders, So it kind of, it's a very broad category. Mm. Intellectual disability is a developmental disability, but more specifically with intellectual disability, it's identified before the age of 18 and it's characterized specifically by delays in cognitive functioning. So a person's ability to learn, problem solve, reason, um, as well as delays in their adaptive skills, which are your life skills, your everyday skills. Thank you so much for sharing that. And in your communities, I wonder um, just what limitations in terms of systems, school systems, and I know you've identified a little bit of what you saw, right, with the social worker coming twice mm-hmm. a week. Um, what do you see are like typically the biggest issues that the population encounter? Um, in terms of accessing this information, mm-hmm. uh, there's yeah. so mu- there's so many. Um, I think so. I think we have to first kind of step even further back. And I think one of the biggest barriers is that sex and sex ed is still this very taboo topic in America. I think we pretend like it's not, but, you know, I had already kind of mentioned before that, like, if I say I'm a sex educator, it's as if no one hears the educator part. The only thing they hear is like sex, right? Um, so I think that's one barrier we need to get past is this weird relationship our society has with talking about sexuality and sexual health. Um, the second barrier is that our school systems don't... Sex education, a medically accurate, comprehensive sex education curriculum is not a mandated part of our education system. Less than half of the schools in our country are required to teach sex ed. And of those places, less than half of those states are required to use medically accurate curriculums, which is kind of scary to think about. Um, So then, so now, so now we're kind of getting deeper, right? The next layer is that people would just, you know, in the places that are offering sex ed, People with disabilities are often being pulled out of those classrooms for instruction. They're not getting the instruction at all, or they're getting this very watered-down version of sex ed. And why does that happen? Well, I think we have this perception that people with disabilities don't need this information because they don't have the capacity to experience sexual desires, wants, needs. Um, They're permanently like children or they're oversexed. And if we talk about this information, it's going to be harmful, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, this is all false. And people with disabilities are people like everyone else. And they have a right to learn everything they can about their lives and their bodies so they can lead happy and healthy lives and make informed decisions about their lives and protect themselves from abuse and harm. Yeah. Those numbers, even there, those numbers are high, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I wonder in your work, do you cover a lot on sexual assault? And I mean, I imagine you do. I wonder, how do you go about that? Obviously, when working with when working with young people themselves, we spend a lot of time talking about um, abuse prevention. Yeah. One of, you know, the concept of consent is something that it can be, it's very tricky to teach, but it's a really important concept to teach. So we talk a lot about the difference between complying and consenting, um, decision-making, you know, just general decision-making, right? Not even decision-making specific to sexual activity, but just what do you want to eat for lunch, right? If 
if I can't make a decision about what I want to eat for lunch, then how am I going to be able to make any decisions related to sexual activity? Um, being able to say no to things, right? Um, if I can't say no to broccoli, I'm going to have a hard time saying no to this person making sexual advances towards me. That is um, so huge. That yeah, is yes. so huge. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's, these are really important things that we teach in, in sex education. Um, that's really, really important for people with disabilities in particular. And I think a lot of times the buy-in for parents is that this is a way to protect your, to keep your child protected from abuse, to keep your child protected from harm. We don't give them this information, this language. They can't report something bad happening. And I think that's often what gets parents to say, okay, yes, this is, this is why it's important. And I'm, you know, I think whatever gets a parent, especially, you know, if someone is under the age of 18, we obviously need the parent to consent to their, to, to them receiving this information. And if they're over the age of 18 and then they're their own guardian, I still like to have kind of parent approval just because I, I believe in partnering with parents, not working against them. But oh, I just lost my train of thought on that one. I'll get, I'll get back to it. But, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's oh I I remember now. Um, it's unfortunate that that sometimes is what gets a parent to to agree. Like, yes, this is important. Um, but you know, whatever whatever gets a parent yeah. there is is all that matters. What gets you through the door, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all that matters. Yeah, that is. Oh my goodness! And even just the concept of boundaries, as you talk about being able to say no, and I feel I feel like that is something a lot of parents struggle with, with or without disabilities. Um, mm-hmm. Teaching giving kids that language, right, to, mm-hmm. and consent and compliance. That is, oh my God, those are so, such major themes that really mm-hmm. show up. Um, when do you find that parents become like the barriers? You know, and you just mentioned a little about um, that being your, your gateway. But yeah. when you are met with resistance, um, what, what, what comes up there? And what do you notice? Yeah. So, I mean... I try to meet parents wherever they are. Um, I try to understand, you know, so I, I, every, I would say that, you know, out of a group of, out of a group of 10 parents, you're going to have five who are very open. They've already started having conversations. They've already started reading books. They've already started doing research. Um, you might have another group of two or three who are they're open, you know, they're happy to have conversations. They're not necessarily comfortable yet to like start doing the work with their child. And then you might have one or two who are just like, not there. They're not ready. They don't want to talk. They don't want to They're just, they're not there. Um, and so I find that with those, with those parents, it's best to try to understand why, you know, what it, why is this information? Why don't you want your child to learn this information? What is it about that makes you uncomfortable? What are you unsure of? I find that a lot of times, you know, the parents are operating out of fear and uncertainty. And I, I get it. It's very scary to think of your child developing sexually and becoming this person who has sexual interests and desires. And it's even scarier if that child has a disability, parents worry about their child being taken advantage of. And we have statistics. Um, so that worry is not for no reason. Um, if a parent, you know, parents are open to it, I'll often share what topics are part of a sex ed curriculum? You know, what are the things that we could talk with your child about? What are the things we can teach them? Um, and sometimes when they see that it's not just sex, right? We're not talking about sex. We're not talking about just contraception. We're talking about hygiene. We're talking about mm-hmm. public places and private places. When they kind of see that there's all of these other topics that fall into the curriculum, um, sometimes that helps move the needle a little bit. Yeah. Um, but like I said, you know, my goal really is to work with and partner with parents and families, not work against them. And so I meet them wherever they are. And if they aren't ready, that's okay. I just keep the conversation going. I work on building rapport and trust with them. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, if they trust me and they trust that I genuinely have their child's best interest in heart, um, then I, you know, they'll eventually see that this is something important for their child. And so, yes, let's do it. Um, so that's, I found that to be helpful, but you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And there are some parents that for a year now I've been working on them and I still haven't gotten a whole lot of movement, but that's okay. Surely takes time and, and trust. And like you said, rapport building, you know, <laughs> sounds very much like therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what myths, uh, would you like to bust about sexual health and developmental disabilities? 
Oh my gosh. There's, there's so many, but <laughs> there's so many, but I think, I think there's two that really stand out. The first one, the first one is, I think a general one, but you know, I think also can be applied and it's that sex ed is just teaching sex and giving permission for people to have sex, which is so false. Um, you know, we know that the actual sex piece of a comprehensive sex ed is a very tiny slice of the pie. Mm-hmm. And I honestly have yet to come across a sex ed curriculum that says, okay, now that you're done, go have sex, go do it. It's going to be great. (laughs) And I've never, I've never seen that. I've never heard anyone say that. Um, so it's just, just not true. Um, no one is teaching children how to have sex. No one is telling them go do it. And to the contrary, you know, we have really fantastic research that tells us that young people who do have access to comprehensive sex ed typically wait longer before engaging in sexual activity and are more likely to follow safer sex practices. Um, so, you know, when we are, when we are delivering this education and information, we are actually empowering young people, whether they have disabilities or not, um, to know their bodies, to feel good about themselves and their bodies, and to make decisions about their lives um, and to be informed. So that's myth number one, that sex ed is not teaching sex and giving permission for sex. And myth number two is this awful, awful idea that people with disabilities, IDD, don't need sex ed because, and just fill in the blank, right? Because they're like a three-year-old, because they're hypersexual, because they're not sexual, because they won't ever have a partner, um, because they shouldn't be sexual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, that's just, it's not true. And it's, that's a really hard myth for me to digest. And I really struggle when I hear people alluding to those types of statements because, people with disabilities are people like everyone else. And whether their disability is purely physical or developmental or intellectual, they still have a right to learn about their bodies. Um, They still have a right to know about their health. Um, And like I said, you know, for this population, this information is also about prevention and protection from abuse. So it's so much more than just learning about all of the amazing parts of development and, and their sexual health. It is about protecting themselves from harm. Any more? Any more myths? <laughs> no, I mean, I'll, I could go on forever and ever. But yeah. those are the two. Those are like the two big ones. Yeah. That, like, I think if we can, if we can, if we can really change our our mindset and our mm. our outlook, I think we can really build a much more sex positive society. If we can just get past this idea that like sex ed is teaching sex and people with disabilities aren't worthy of having sex ed. Mm-hmm. And even as you talk about that, what's coming up for me is the idea that sex is also for procreation, reproduction. And I yes. think we've moved so far away from that. And I think even for parents with children with um, those disabilities, I'm wondering if there is a fear that and I, I'm thinking that's even more reason to educate mm-hmm. and expand um, just the idea of sex because, yeah, that is a pleasure too. And um, just having that conversation, like, you know, maybe having, uh, making sure that they're reproductive, uh, you know, and I, and I wonder too, like, if that is a fear, how do you even talk about reproductive health and what might be um, the best method? Not, I mean, I'm sure you're not telling them what the best method is, but how... Yeah they could take those measures if that is a concern for them, right? And I, yeah. I just imagine like all of these factors are coming up. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so, yeah, it is such a, it is such a complex subject. You know, the, yeah. the topic of sexuality and how it intersects with disability is so complex because there are, and I mean, when you get into, you know, individuals who are not their own guardian, whose parents are the legal guardians of them, you know, it's like technically they cannot date without their parents' permission. Um, like there's just, there's a lot that comes to the surface. And so I think that for one, you know, what I had mentioned earlier that I had, a, I had a lot of cognitive shifts over the years as I mm-hmm. learned more about sexual health and sexuality for this, and sexual education for this population. And one of the things that I really shifted big on, um, or not shifted, but just realized is that, you know, we have to be so proactive in delivering this information and teaching this information to young people. And that's for across the board, right? Not just for people with disabilities, but we should be teaching children from a young age how to label yes. the parts of their body using medical terms, right? Like it's okay to call your vagina a chi-chi, but we also need to teach girls that their chi-chi is called a vagina. Um, 
And so, and so, you know, that, yes, that's true for all children, but like, especially for pe- people with disabilities, like we have to be so proactive in teaching this information. And I, you know, encourage parents that like, the more you talk about it, the less uncomfortable it will feel. And then you'll be way ahead of the game. And so when things do come up, like, you know, my child expressed interest in dating, my child has expressed interest in having private time in their room because they want to engage in solo sex. Um, it's not as scary. It's not as surprising. Um, and you'll have more tools in your toolkit to kind of, ha- you'll know, you know, you'll have more strategies for how to answer the questions, how to have the conversations. Cause you've, you've been doing this for, for a long time, right? It's not brand new. I think we have a tendency to be really reactive, especially with this population, um, in that we don't talk about sexuality, sexual health, um, until something has happened, right? Like yeah. Marsha mm-hmm. disrobed in the grocery store. And now we need to start talking about sex ed when yeah. she's at 19 years old, yeah. right? Like public and Marcia, private. Yeah. Right. Like Marsha needed sex ed a long time ago. Like yeah. why are we starting at 19? Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so it's, there's so much, there's so many layers. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, it's like, talking about reproduction i mean that's a whole that is a whole nother like podcast episode and that is such a that is such a person you know that is such a personal Mm -hmm. decision for every individual and every family and and yeah it's like you know if you're having that conversation in addition to like oh my gosh my child also doesn't know how to label their body parts like it just becomes a lot right Mm -hmm. so i think being proactive is the best the best Mm -hmm. strategy Yes. And, and I think understanding basic science, because biology is biology. You're yes. going through the, the stages. I'm thinking in those puberty years, I mean, yes. they're not limited to that. Like there's a lot happening with the body and the mind and yes. physical there's, development. Yeah. <laughs> there's so, I mean, there's so much and like, you know, and, and it's not just for people with disabilities, yeah. but like even, even typical adolescents who are going through puberty, mm-hmm. like need a lot of need a lot of help, need a lot of support. My gosh, I think yeah. about myself. And I was like, huh, I, I wish someone talked to me more about what was going on with yes. my body and my emotions and, mm-hmm. and not, and not just in the, you know, my 40 minute health class where I learned about, yeah. I'm going to have more pimples and I'm going to be sweating more, but like real, like what's really going on during puberty. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, I think, I think we as a country need to make a lot of changes and improvement to, um, our sex education and our positions on, on sexuality and sex ed and sexual health. Yeah. And, and you talk about this country. Um, I'm from the Caribbean, from St. Lucia. And um, I'm just thinking as you talk about these things, I'm wondering if that sector of the population is getting anything like what you're describing. Because it often seems like those persons are shunned into a center and yeah. that's where they go. And we, we, we don't really fully understand what skills or what they're developing when they go there. So, you know, it just takes my mind all the way there and um, <laughs> wondering what I can do, you know, to maybe provide a program, something like that. You know, you should you should definitely do it. I mean, I, yeah, I can't I can only speak to Russia because that's the only place, the only other country outside mm-hmm. of America that I've um, had the experience of what's going on sexual sex ed wise over there. And I mean, there is, it's not happening in, in Russia, not just for people with disabilities, but in general, there is no sex ed, um, that's offered in school. And I remember a couple years ago, I, this foundation, I was there with this foundation. They, um, do like a yearly, um, like conference forum, um, for people in Russia. And so I was doing a workshop on sex ed and was for professionals and a professional came up to me after the, my workshop ended. And she told me that she learned so much. She didn't know about, I was talking about, you know, reproduction and puberty and contraception and all kinds of stuff. That's like, I would consider general information and knowledge. And she was like, I didn't know any of this. And I learned all of this today from you. And thank you so much. And it was just like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) 
And I mean, my mom told me that when my parents were living there back in the Soviet Union days, Mm -hmm. um, when a woman was pregnant, even if she, I mean, if a woman was pregnant and not married, that was like, oh my gosh, biggest no-no. You were shamed Mm -hmm. into, shamed into isolation. Um, But even if you were a married woman, you wouldn't say that this woman is pregnant. You would say that she's in a special condition. Um, because like saying she's pregnant essentially alludes to people having sex, I guess. Um, but I mean, and it's just like, it's, it's so silly, but it's, it's culturally, it's very different. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I remember the first time that I went to Russia to do this like week long seminar there. Um, I was working very closely with two consultants through this foundation to kind of like carefully craft the language we were using and you know we didn't talk about sexuality we talked about like safe behavior and like the first day was just spent on talking about kind of the safety concerns and why this is important from the safety perspective and we spent maybe I think like three days of workshop before we got to the actual like sex information part like just talking about you know how you deliver this information yeah. to young people um because it is it's sensitive it's a sensitive topic there mm-hmm. um so i definitely encourage you to yeah get it out across the world yeah because that even that concept of shame as you can talk about pregnancy you know i, I think that is a lot to to work with parents on because I think yes. they too have their own shame about sexuality and, and that too is passing on uh, those decisions that they 100%. make. 100%. And that's, that is something that we talk about is, you know, what did you hear growing up about sex and sexuality? You know, did anyone talk to you about it? No one talked to you about it. Well, what kind of message does that send? Or, you know, t- talking about, mixed messages we get about sexuality like saying you know sex is great but you should wait until marriage and it's like well what does that mean is it not great if you're not married like what what does that mean um so and and yeah and helping parents see that you know sometimes the messages you've heard over the course of your life they sit in your brain and they they fog the lens by which that you're looking at sexuality and so how do we how do we change that perspective and how do we change change those messages around because you know young people with disabilities are getting a lot of negative messages about their sexuality. And so us being sex positive as their parents and providers and caregivers is a really, really powerful way to combat all of those negative messages they hear. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all the work you're doing. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And and I'm wondering, uh, we did touch a little bit about abuses and assaults, uh, but for youth with um, disabilities, we know that they're three times more likely to be abused um, than youth without disabilities. So I'm wondering, you know, what can uh, therapists, parents, caretakers um, guard against um, while still being sex positive? Because I know sometimes the idea of abuse can become the the thing that we focus so heavily on that Mm. we don't even think about well, in, in this instance, you know, sex can be great. It can be a beautiful thing and, and even talking about the pleasure of it. So how yes. can they, how can they find that sweet spot? If, if so. <laughs> That's a really good question. And I think so um, Dave Hingsberger, whose name I threw out earlier. Um, mm-hmm. So he's been in the sexuality disability space for a very long time and has created some really wonderful resources. And he, uh, in particular, has worked a lot with individuals who are more impacted by their disability. So they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have verbal language. Um, Perhaps they require assistance with toileting, diaper changes. So, you know, people that have, individuals that have people in very personal spaces. Um, So how do we teach those young people skills to kind of keep themselves safe and protected? Um, So he developed this framework called the ring of safety. And I really like it because I think, I think for me, it touches on what you were saying, right? It it basically says that we need to teach people a certain set of skills so that they can keep themselves safe from abuse, but in doing so, they can also live independent lives and be healthy and happy. Um, And so, you know, what do we need to teach? Well, the first is that we need to have sex education. We need to teach them sex education without access to sex education. We can't label our body parts. We don't understand how our bodies function. And a good sex ed is going to teach us what is healthy, what is good, 
um, the difference between consent and compliance. And you truly, you can't discriminate good from bad and right from wrong if no one tells you. So that's kind of the first piece, right? When through sex ed, we learn about what are things that are good and healthy? And then what are the things that I need to stay away from things that can harm me? Mm -hmm. Um, the second piece that he talks about is this privacy awareness. Um, Mm -hmm. so we need to help people with disabilities understand what privacy is, but also give them access to privacy. Um, the first is that, right. We all need time to ourselves. We all need time (laughs) away from people, whether whether it's because we want solo sex or not, like we all just need time to ourselves, but you know, people with disabilities, especially those who are more impacted, don't know privacy. They don't understand privacy the way the way we do because they are very rarely left completely alone, even if they're using the toilet or the shower. Um, people with disabilities very often have people speaking about them in front of them as if they aren't there, sharing deeply personal information about menstruation solo sex habits, toileting, you name it. Um, and so it sends this message that their bodies, lives, and their private experiences aren't their own. Um, and so, you know, we need to teach this idea of privacy, right, by talking about private things in private places, not in the company of a lot of people. Um, if we're telling them you can only do X, Y, and Z in a private place, you know, we can only... You only have solo sex when you're alone in your bedroom. Well, then we need to make sure this person has time alone in their bedroom. Yeah. And to quote Mr. Hingsberger, essentially we need to give access to true privacy because sex education may give the language to report abuse, but privacy awareness gives the concept to understand it. So in teaching privacy awareness, we are preventing abuse, but we're also helping this person access private time so they can have time with themselves and enjoy themselves, whether they're touching themselves or not. You know, we all need private time. It's healthy for all of us. Um, We'd already kind of talked about the importance of teaching people how to say no, how to appropriately protest things. Um, You know, one, I, I should be able to protest the things I don't want, whether it's sexual or not. If I don't want to eat broccoli, I shouldn't have to eat broccoli. So that's like just one thing to kind of improve my quality of life. Um, But moreover, if I don't know how to say no to broccoli, then I'm going to have a hard time saying no to someone making a sexual advancement. The other thing that's really important with this um, that I talk with parents and professionals a lot about is the linguistic difference between statements and questions. And we have a tendency to phrase statements in the form of a question thinking we're going to get this person's buy-in, especially if they have a disability. If we say the statement in the form of a question, then they'll, they're going to be more likely to do it. So I've, I've heard so many times things like, Hey, Marsha, do you want to do the dishes? No. Okay. Well, it's your turn to do the dishes. Your name's on the schedule tonight. So go do the dishes. You can do three and be done. I've seen that so many times and it is so dangerous because what it's teaching is that no doesn't mean no. And when you ask a question, you're implying a choice. And so when we ask questions, we have to be prepared for that person to say no. And assuming obviously that there's nothing unsafe happening, we then have to be prepared. We then have to be prepared to honor that no. Um, And so, you know, I I tell parents, just be mindful. If, if, you know, if it's Marsha's turn to do dishes because it's Wednesday, then you're not asking her to do the dishes. It's, hey, Marsha, your name is on the schedule for the dishes. It's your turn. Let's go do it. You know, like, let's make sure we're using statements um, because it's very dangerous if we're teaching people inadvertently that no doesn't mean no. Yes. Um, I see that even with non-disabilities, parents with mm -hmm. teenagers. I can't tell you how many times I get crisis emails from parents um, just with that whole compliance thing, expecting that to be the, like, and I'm not saying it in, in that children should not listen to their parents. And I think there's a really fine right. line there. But right. we're not giving leaving room for, you know, negotiating. And I always say, like, this is where you start developing those skills. You mm-hmm. start developing skills to negotiate and even mm-hmm. manage your time. You know, giving them some buy-in in their schedule. And when might mm-hmm. be the best time to do certain things. These are things that I'm frequently talking about. And even as you talk about privacy, that is so huge. I've met teenagers whose parents have taken away their door, taken mm-hmm. away the doorknob, which I think is 
I wouldn't, I, I can't see that I would ever do that to my children because I know the value of privacy and how they yes. need to know that there's a little part of the world that is just mine. Yes. You know, when I go yeah. to my bedroom at the end of the day, this is my place. This is my safe mm-hmm. space where I can just be. And mm-hmm. I see that parents struggle with that. Mm-hmm. They really struggle with that. So I can just yeah. imagine what that looks like for someone who is needing constant care and, and yeah. guidance. Yeah. Well, and you know, I've definitely, when I've introduced the idea of we need to teach your child to say no, we need to teach your child to protest. I've had a lot of parents who've looked at me thinking like, are you out of your mind? Like, why are we teaching? And, and I get it, right? Because then it becomes this, they're now saying no and refusing everything. But what I what I explain to parents is we can work through this, right? They're just learning that they can now say no and refuse mm-hmm. things. And yeah. we will work through that. We will teach them that sometimes you can say no and sometimes we can, you know, negotiate things. And sometimes yeah. things are not negotiable. Like brushing exactly. your teeth, you, have, you mm-hmm. have to brush your teeth. That's not negotiable. But mm-hmm. like we can negotiate like the dishes or something like that. Or yeah. sometimes no is is no. So we can work through that because at the end of the day, I would feel a lot more comfortable knowing that this, that Marsha now as a 26-year-old woman, when she is on her Metro Access van and that driver tries to touch her, she will loudly say, no, stop. And that is a very important, a very valuable skill Mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't develop unless we actually teach them that. Yeah. Unless they've gone through some type of trauma. Or unless, unfortunately, they've gone through some kind of trauma. Yeah, definitely. I hate that. And I like that you talked about negotiable because that's one thing I was working with a parent um, on creating. What is the the negotiable things Mm -hmm. and what are the non-negotiable things? You know, like... Mm -hmm certain things that they can really decide on their own. When might be a good time for me to wash the dishes? Yes, they know they need to wash the dishes. Could there be a schedule where, you know, they have some flexibility somewhere, right? Where they can get things done. So it's just, oh my God, it's it's fun working with those issues. But mm-hmm. I can see there are times when, you know, these parents, they just don't understand that language because that's not what they they grew up on or yeah <laughs> but well, I, it's also yeah i would say it's also um i think helps parents to see that you know a lot of our social behaviors are connected to our sexual behaviors and, mm-hmm. and we don't necessarily realize it right so like mm-hmm. saying no isn't just about saying no to sexual advances or just saying no to a specific wearing you know this sweater or eating this lunch like you know, saying no is a very important skill for a lot of reasons. And I think sometimes we don't see the connection between social behaviors and sexual behaviors, but they are, they are very connected and we need to treat sexual behaviors like social behaviors. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much for touching on that. Cause I think everyone needs to hear that, right? (laughs) Everyone needs to hear that. Definitely. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about um, just any upcoming workshops and um, just what your best hopes are for parents when you're hosting these workshops. Yeah. So, yeah, we've been doing them monthly. Um, I have partnered with my friend Yetta at DC Autism Parents um, to offer them to the community every month. Um, We have one. There's four workshops. Um, One is is just like a a crash course for parents and caregivers. Um, And that one we offer every other month um, to the community. And then um, on the off months, we rotate between one on um, understanding consent, one that's uh, sex ed for girls, women, non-binary and genderqueer individuals. And then we also have sex ed for boys, men, non-binary and genderqueer individuals as well. So kind of focusing, yeah, focusing the topics a little bit more. Um, so yeah, we've been doing them every month. We were They were in person, but we made pivots and now they're on Zoom, which has been going really well. I'm actually going to be the sex ed for girls, boys, men, women, non-binary and gender queer individuals. Um, I'm going to be starting those for the first time next month. So I'm very excited to roll those out. I've been working on those for quite a few months now. Um, so I'm excited to offer that to everyone. Um, my hopes for parents. It's a hard question, but I think my hope for parents, um, is that they, they keep an open mind. They are proactive and they give themselves the grace and space to make mistakes or be unsure. Being a parent is such a hard job and having a child with a disability adds a layer of complexity. And I remind parents that they're doing the best that they can with the information they have. 
um, and that it's okay to be scared and it's okay to be unsure and it's definitely okay to not have all the answers. Um, and I think in this field, you know, we all have the same goal, whether we're parents, professionals, or the individuals ourselves that we want, we want our young people to develop into happy and healthy adults who lead productive lives, whatever that looks for them, whether they have a job they go to or a day program that they go to, um, but that they're happy, healthy, productive, and they're safe, um, from abuse and harm. And I think if we can all work together, then we can create a really safe sex positive world for our young people. So just open mind, proactive, and just give yourself grace and space. You know, you're doing the best you can. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just share with me, um, you know, what what are some things that you do to continue to, to learn and build on your skills? Um, and, you know, maybe what has what else has inspired you? What do you read or listen to? So I, um, well, now that I've discovered your podcast, I'm going to be listening to your podcast a lot more often. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I mean, I have some like podcasts and things that I'll listen to. Um, anytime there's a webinar or a conference, um, I will be there, especially if there's anything sexuality, disability related, I'm 100% there. Um, I do subscribe to sexuality and disability, which is a peer reviewed journal loaded with research on the subject. Um, so that's really cool. I like reading it and it's not just specific to intellectual developmental disability. So it's really cool kind of reading about all the different things that are happening all around the world on the topic. Um, I meet monthly with my sexuality supervisor. She's been a really excellent resource for me in all my work. Um, I have a few like sexperts that I follow on social media. So that's been pretty cool. And, um, you know, in my work, like I had mentioned, um, I work with adults. So this is, you know, their sexual health and their sexuality is very much a part of my day to day work. Um, and I have, you know, some close colleagues that I go to for guidance and support when I need help or problem solving or bouncing ideas. And so, um, I find that, that that helps me kind of stay on top of new information or helps to keep me from recreating the wheel because they'll point me in a direction of where I can find something or get something. I love that. And as you talk about books, I came across, um, actually, so last year, I guess my, my when my fascination really began um, with this population, um, thinking about the sexual side of things, because I only started my sex therapy um, certification last year. So it was last, um, it was last fall, I came across Love and Abilities. Um, mm-hmm. It was virtual sexuality and disability festival. Uh, I believe mm-hmm. it won. Was it in Europe? I think. I don't think yes, it was in I the think, UK. No, I think the I think the organizers were based out of the UK. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, and I love the concept. And you know, the it seems like the main theme was to change the belief that people with disabilities they have, you know, most people think they don't have no desire for for love, sex, intimacy. And I think what they're really working towards was to fill in the gaps. Um you know, for the lack of sex education and um, just positive role models. And also during that same time, I don't know if you follow Justin Lay Miller. Um, he actually presented with Shar um, last last year. Um, he interviewed Andrew Gazar. Uh, he has the book, um, The Handy Book of Love, Lust and Disability. Uh, one of the things I was really blown away by was even the sex toy industry is mm-hmm. not designed uh, for people with disabilities. And mm-hmm. one of the things he's working on is creating his own sex toy line. Um, I think he's calling it Handy. Um, but I don't know if he's, he has relisted yet, released it yet, but um, it was really fascinating that he came up with this idea of this thing that kind of looks, he, he explained it because I was listening to it on a podcast, um, Sex and Psychology, um, something like a noodle. But if you mm-hmm. were you had some mobility issues or your hand mm-hmm. couldn't hold on to a toy. Um, you could really use that thing to self-pleasure. And that just, you know, I was, I just really connected with that because we don't think about these things. Often. No, um, not, not at all. Yeah. I, um, I attended that conference as well, virtually, obviously. Um, and yes, it was, it was amazing. I learned so much. I mean, there were topics on things that I like didn't even think that there could be topics on. And it was so, it was such a wonderful learning experience. Um, and yeah, no, you're completely right. I mean, something like sex toys, sex toys are not, not made for people with any sort of disability. And, and 
on top of that, right, like there are some people that, you know, be, they might have a physical impairment and so they need some sort of modification or adaptation to the actual toy. But then, you know, we don't really have any sort of instructional materials available to people on like how to use this toy or how to masturbate or how to do these things. And, um, you know, I guess you could say that porn, but porn is not necessarily always the best uh, teaching tool. Um, So I think there's, there's so much opportunity um, in the sexuality space to kind of Mm -hmm. um, create, create things that are for people that are differently abled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's so many themes that I want to dive into here um, around kink and BDSM oh, and non me yes. because these, yes. I, I imagine like people in these populations, they, you know, all of that, those are things that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think. Beneficial, <laughs> right? I think, yeah. I mean, I think people, so I would say that a lot of people just assume people with disabilities are either like asexual or mm-hmm. just default heterosexual. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that's not true. Um, just because you have a disability doesn't mean that you are immune to being gay, lesbian, trans, non-binary. These, these are not things that are unique to typically developing people. Um, this is something that everyone experiences. Um, and so we have a lot of new information that's come through research um, over the last couple of years that show young people with autism who are also gay, lesbian, trans, bi- non-binary. Um, and so we can't just assume that if you have a disability, you are completely asexual or you're you know, you're straight like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm, I'm doing, air, I'm doing air, Yeah, you can't, you can't see my air quotes, but I've been doing a lot of air quotes on around words. Um, I keep forgetting that we're not like looking at each other, but yeah, you know, like everyone else was in quotes. Um, so yeah, so yeah, you know, these are not, yeah, like you said, these are not topics um, that are just specific to people who don't have disabilities or who are not intellectually disabled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. You've shared an abundance of, of just knowledge. And um, I hope whoever this resonates with, that they can really connect with the information and, um, yeah. you know, and connect with you. Um, so I'm also big on careers and resources. And I wonder for you, someone listening wanted to pursue a career very, you know, very like similar to yours. Um, I wonder how would you guide them? Um, I would tell them they should just jump in. Um, don't be scared. There is, we need more people who want to spread the good word about sex ed, especially for people with disabilities. Um, you know, they can certainly connect with me and I can point them in the direction of, um, resources and webinars. Um, you know, the, the three names that I had thrown out earlier, Dave Kingsberger, Peter Gerhardt, Catherine McLaughlin, um, you know, you can Google any one of their names and you'll find a ton of information, um, so those that could be a good starting place as well. But if you are the least bit interested, I would say just go for it. Um, we need more people who are interested and passionate and comfortable because I think mm-hmm. that's the other piece. I think there are people yeah. that are interested. There are yeah. people who say it's mm-hmm. important, um, but not everyone's necessarily comfortable talking yeah. about it. And so if you're interested and you're comfortable, do it. Yeah. That's that gets you halfway there. And also, is it common? Like, is the expectation to start with special ed education first? Do you need that foundation? I'm imagining. Um, I mean, I think, you know, if you want to work with people with disabilities, I don't think you necessarily need to have like a special education degree or a background, but it certainly would help to learn about, you know, people with autism, people with intellectual disabilities, you know, how, what are, good teaching strategies. Like how, Mm -hmm. how do, right. Like if you don't necessarily know, um, how someone with autism processes the world, like if you don't understand kind of what, what their experience is as someone with autism and how they're receiving information and, and interpreting what you're doing and saying that it might be hard for you to actually work with them. So I would say that having some understanding about, um, what, what the dis- the disability the individual has um, will be helpful, but I don't think you necessarily need to have a degree in special ed. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, so uh, how can our listeners connect with you and your work? Um, so, I mean, I'm on, I'm on like Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I do have a little website. It's very, it's very basic, but it's there. 
Um, it's sexualityandidd.com. So um, people can certainly, I think you can, it's supposed to link to my email. So you can like contact me and email me. Um, again, it's very basic, but it's there and I'm proud of it. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Maybe, awesome. one, maybe one day I'll have a more uh, robust website when I'm yeah. traveling around the world. <laughs> yeah. And something to just feature all your, you know, all your services. Yeah. 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 It, it does. Um, it does have, I post the, the workshops that are coming up are posted on there. And when links, uh, when the registration goes live for each one, um, you, people can register through the website. Awesome. But Masha, thank you so much for just being with us and chatting with us. And um, I think our audience will be quite pleased with uh, just the information they receive from this episode. And um, the thing about disability is, I think at one point or another, we will all encounter some form of it. Um, Yes. You know, some of us make it to our elderly years and some of us don't. But there's going to be a time when we have to think about how we might need to shift and do things differently. And um, we want to make sure we understand what that is like. Yeah. So yeah. thank you so much for just sharing and then being with us. And Thank um, you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me here. This was yeah. really fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us this week on Her Sexual Space. Uh, for more information on this week's topic, um, you can check out our Instagram at Her Sexual Space Space Podcast, where I will feature our uh, amazing guests. And um, if you have any questions, you can always add us in the comment. Um, and you can also check out our website at hersexualspace.com. Well, thank you guys so much and see you all next week.